When a young American graphic novelist traveled to Damascus while touring the Middle East, she didn't realize that she was documenting what life was like a few months before civil war broke out in Syria. We really didn't see it coming. When I left, I had plans to go back. I said, you know, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to learn Arabic. I'm, I love it here. Sarah Glidden tells us what it was like before things really started to fall apart. Find out how other languages can express ideas we don't always have an easy way of describing in English. A Dutch linguist suggests a few fun examples we might want to add to our vocabulary. Then you also have this word gun, which means enjoying somebody else's good fortune, and you never hear that. And friends from Prague remind us that talking things over while sharing a beer or two at a pub is a Czech tradition we all should try a little more often. The thing is, we are always saying, like, all the problems will be solved with a, with a muck of beer in our hands. The next round's on us in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ours is probably the world's biggest language. Some academics have calculated that English has more than a million words thanks to how easily it can absorb words and ideas from other languages. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, a linguist from the famously multilingual Netherlands suggests a few more concepts from other tongues that we might consider adding into our vocabulary. And friends from Prague tell us why they couldn't imagine moving away if it meant missing out on the great beer culture that's part of everyday life in the Czech Republic. Let's start out today with a look at how quickly things can change in the hot zones of the Middle East in just a few years' time. Sarah Glidden went on a fact-finding trip with a couple of journalist friends and a former Marine to see how people were coping in the aftermath of the Iraq War. They crossed borders from Turkey and northern Iraq into Syria, into territory that they didn't know would soon devolve into civil war. Some of it would come under the control of the Islamic State. Sarah is a cartoonist and illustrator who features non-fiction comics for adults. Her version of graphic journalism conveys the realities of real people's lives. She documents her journey through the Middle East in her latest book. It's called Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Sarah, good to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. So nice to have you here to share this amazing story. Uh, and first of all, Sarah, describe the original trip uh, back in 2010. This was just before the Syrian civil war broke out. Where did you go and just generally what was the trip? The idea for this book came because actually at the time I wouldn't have called myself a journalist. I was a newcomer to journalism. I was more someone who was curious about how journalism worked because I had these friends of mine who had started a nonprofit journalism organization called the Seattle Globalist, who did a lot of local reporting in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, but they did do international reporting trips about once a year. And so my idea was to accompany them on one of their next international reporting trips in order to observe them as they worked and see how does a journalist find their stories. So it just happened to be this area. It just happened to be this area. And you area. were the, the kid. They were older and more established. <laughs> well, we're the same age, the same but... Age, but they were more into the yeah, journalism than the other I was, time. This is a project of meta-journalism, in a way. I was there to shadow them, see how they work, and, and really how, ask questions. How long were you there, and, and what countries did you go to? We were there two months, so we started in Istanbul. We made our way across Turkey to the southeast. Um, we did some interviews there. We traveled by land over into northern Iraq, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, and we stayed in Iraq for about a week and a half interviewing a man who had been deported from the U.S. back to his home city of Suleimania. And then we 
went from Beirut into Damascus in Syria. You went through what is now ISIS territory. <laughs> yeah. And you were in what you would call Kurdistan, which Turkey would not want you to call no, it they, that. No, they would not like but that. The, <laughs> but the Kurds who live there think of it as Kurdistan. <laughs> yes. And then you were able to travel through Syria. Now, at the time, could you just cross the border between Turkey and Iraq? You really could. Just like any traveler. The journalists who I was with had to get journalist visas, mm -hmm. um, which was not an easy thing to do. They were able to secure them pretty much a week before we got there. So they picked them up from the embassy in Beirut, and they weren't sure if they were going to even be able to do this reporting. But for me, I just filed for a tourist visa uh -huh. ahead of time. So you did need a visa. I did need a visa, yeah. but it was fairly simple. And, you know, at the time, Damascus was a place where lots of Westerners, people from all over the world, really went to study Arabic, to see the old city. You know, Syria was a very welcoming place. And it was a tourist destination. And part of our goal in going there was not only to talk about Iraqi refugees, which was, you know, why we were there to do reporting, but also to kind of show Americans this country that we really felt was underreported. And that country was? Syria. Syria. Yes. And just in a few short years, it's a completely different reality, isn't it? Yeah, we really didn't see it coming. And when I left, I had plans to go back. I said, you know, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to learn Arabic. I love it here. And by the way, you're Jewish, right? Because just a couple years before, you went on a birthright trip to Israel. Yes, I am. Was that an issue at all? I mean, did you have an Israeli stamp on your passport? No, because when I went to Israel, I, I knew that I would probably want to be traveling to other parts of the Middle East. So you can ask them to please don't stamp my passport, stamp a piece of paper, and, you know, they'll kind of give you a, and, a look, but and, they'll do it. Okay. Cartoonist Sarah Glidden's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She's produced a nonfiction graphic novel that takes us into the lives of people she met in Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. It's called Rolling Blackouts. Her website is sarahglidden.com. You can also listen to Sarah's earlier visit with us as she describes going to Israel for the first time on a birthright tour. It's in the Travel with Rick Steves show archives at ricksteves.com radio. Look for program number 478 from March 2017. What were your impressions just generally? You went to Turkey, referred to the southeast. That's, you know, Turkey is what, 70 million people and 10 million of them would consider themselves Kurdish Turks. Yes. And this is where they live. What were your impressions of Kurdish Turkey or the Kurdish corner of Turkey? Well, uh, you know, it was a very touchy subject. We were there to talk to refugees from Iran. So we weren't actually there to dig into the Kurdish issue so much. Because, by the way, that is a big issue with Turks because Kurds want to secede and create their own country. And Turkey doesn't want to lose 20% of their population and have a, another little country carved out of the Kurdish parts of Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, right? Right. And so, you know, when you're in the Kurdish areas of Turkey you're not really supposed to talk about that issue. You're really not even supposed to call them Kurds. You know, if we mentioned to some man that we met on the street, like, oh, like, people speak Kurdish here, and he's like, they're not Kurds, they're Turks. And then when we you go to northern Iraq, to the Kurdish region of Iraq, it's very different. People are very proud of being Kurdish. They've had a semi-autonomous state for almost a decade. And so for them, it was a source of pride. You know, all the signs are in Kurdish. So you have just, when you cross borders, you can see just the changes that happen. Well, that's black and white between the Kurdish area of Turkey and the semi-autonomous Kurdish area of Iraq. Yes, yeah. 
I remember when I was in, in southeastern Turkey, you didn't want to have the name. I mean, people couldn't fly the, the colors of Kurdistan. It was pretty uptight. Yeah, and in fact, we were having an interview at the UNHCR field office there, um, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, and through the window I could see this mountain with some rocks spelling out something in Turkish, and I asked the UNHCR officer that we were talking to, what does that say? Because, you know, he can read Turkish, and he said, it says it's good to be a Turk. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Probably a picture of Ataturk next Yeah. Time. Yeah, they're actually on a different mountain. There is a giant picture of Ataturk. So, and, you know, you talk to these UNHCR field workers, and he said to us, you know, it's a shame politics really gets in the way of people because for him, he's just there to work for refugee rights, to help people. And, you know, he just sees this as this is getting in the way of people actually just living their lives. So you crossed the border into Iraq. This was before ISIS. Did the country feel stable? It really did. I mean, we were very aware of the fact that that changes when you go just a few kilometers south. You know, our taxi driver, we kind of, we saw a, a highway sign that says, you know, to Mosul, to Baghdad. And one of us made a joke like, hey guys, you want to go to Mosul? And our taxi driver, who is Kurdish, you know, no, 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 no Mosul, no Mosul. Oh, we're yeah. not going there. We we're like, no, we're just joking. Because you have this, you know, there are and checkpoints. this was in 2010. Yes, this was in 2010. So even then there was that. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Kurdish Iraq is where southern Iraqis would come for vacation. You know, it was a safe place. There yeah. are Peshmerga checkpoints, you know, keeping the wrong people out, so to speak. So and Peshmerga being the Kurdish security force, so they didn't, they would let vacationers in, but they'd keep a general eye on people. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Glidden, and her book is called Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Sarah, when you're in Iraq, just apart from the politics and ISIS and all the troubles in Syria, it seems like a land of no trees, of dust and concrete, where women and men are separate. Uh, that's kind of the distant view. What is it like for you when you're catching a taxi from one town to the next? What, just what does it feel like? Well, it's very beautiful, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my friend remarked, it looks like California. You know, that you have these rolling hills that just look like suede. And it's very beautiful, just canyons and, you know, beautiful mountains. Generally brown or generally green? um, Both, you know, Mm -hmm. sandy colored. (laughs) Okay. And the city that we spent the most time in, Suleimania, it's an old city. It's in ways very conservative. You can't hold hands uh, with your boyfriend on the street. But also it was a place that's kind of up and coming. You know, there was a new American university there. So there are a lot of foreign interests there. There was a lot of these new shopping malls. And and you made a point, part of your mission, to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And what's one of the favorite lessons you learned by talking to people in Iraq that you put in your book, Rolling Blackouts? Well, you know, it should be said that the Iraq that we were in is a very different Iraq than the rest of Iraq. But people were very friendly towards Americans. We have a, a big history with the Kurds. Um, the American military does, not just for this most recent war and the no-fly zone that went into place in the 90s, but, you know, over time, Americans have either helped the Kurds or kind of pulled the rug out from under them. But I think there is a relationship there, and people in general were happy to see us and happy to talk to journalists. They were happy to have their stories told, whether they were just, you know, some guy working at a restaurant or uh, an internally displaced person living in a really bad condition. They wanted to talk to journalists. They wanted Americans to hear their stories. And what's one story that you'd like to share from them? 
what was one of the most interesting places that we went, we actually, while we were in the taxi on our way there, our taxi driver pointed out a prison and he said, that was one of Saddam's prisons. People live there now. And we said, wait a minute, what? Who lives there now? And he's like, oh, I don't know. People who don't have homes. And so we looked into this and it turned out that a lot of the buildings that Saddam Hussein's army and military used to use for either housing his troops or for imprisoning and torturing people were now abandoned because he's not there anymore or, you know, he hadn't been there for a long time. And now they were kind of these places where internally displaced people from the south of Iraq or from disputed territories like Kirkuk had come to live because they had nowhere else to go. So we visited one of these ex-barracks, and there were a large number of families living there. And they were really eager to to show us their lives because they felt like they had been ignored. You know, everybody Mm -hmm. cares about what's happening in southern Iraq, and the Kurds care about just keeping their Kurdish territory, but they said, we feel like no one pays attention to us. Sarah Glidden is the author and artist behind the nonfiction graphic novel Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. She takes your calls in a minute at 877-333-7425. In just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll explore some of the words English could borrow to better express a few hard-to-define concepts. And we'll learn how going out to enjoy a local brew plays an important role in bringing people together in the Czech Republic. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Glidden. Her book is Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Steve's calling in from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Steve, thanks for your call. Thanks for having me, Rick. Yeah, I wanted to ask Sarah, what do the ordinary people of the Middle East, not the military or the politicians or the well-connected or well-to-do, but what do ordinary, everyday people think of U.S. American influence in the Middle East? Well, it really depends on who you're talking to and where. I was just talking about people in Kurdistan, in Iraq, and, you know, they were somewhat friendly towards Americans, perhaps not American military, but they have a complicated relationship. They feel a little bit protected, but in the past they've also been let down. But we spent a lot of time in Syria. We were there to talk to Iraqi refugees, people whose lives have been turned upside down from the war that started with the invasion of 2003. And so people were very angry, especially older people who had kids. When you talk to young people, they were more open to Americans, the idea of going to the United States, going to college there, restarting their lives, which had been interrupted. And And, and they were talking to you as an American, so they knew you were an American. We're journalists, but we're also, as a journalist, you're a representative of the country that you're from. And we were very upfront with them that we're from the United States and why we were there and why we wanted to talk to them. And a lot of them, you know, they had not been able to talk to an American before. They had seen Americans, American troops maybe, or they had seen the effects of Americans. But for a lot of them, we were the first Americans they had ever gotten to talk to. And they had questions for us. At the same time, we would get yelled at a little bit, but they also understood, like, we know that you're not the ones personally who did this, but we just want you to tell other people, like, that this is how we feel. Give me a concrete example. What's a question they had or a grievance? Uh, They were very blunt. Why did you invade our country? There are other countries that were doing worse things. Why did you come to ours? 
What did we do to deserve this? And what was the benefit of it? And these are now refugees in Syria. Yes. Because their country fell apart. Yes. And now they're probably back in Iraq again. Because of what's going on in Syria. Yes. Steve, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Lauren's on the phone from Boise, Idaho. Yes. Hello, Mr. Steve. Hello, Sarah. I uh, got a question. I've been in contact with a uh, person who lives in Syria. They are Kurdish and they teach in Syria. But during their whole life, uh, they lived in Amuda, and they also live in some place called Hasaka. They have lived their whole life from one war to the next. And they're saying the people there in uh, Hasaka are very angry. It's kind of a not a very good place to be right now. And they're not making much money. They have no electricity, no heating. And she is wanting to leave, not necessarily come to the United States, but they want to get to to Turkey or to Germany. They're talking about getting a flyer card, which is illegal, and I told them, you know, I don't think I would do that if I were you. But, I mean, is there any way I can give this person some hope or some way of... of, Because they're kind of reaching out, you know, for help, and I just wonder if there's any way I can give them some kind of, um, I don't know, uplifting or I don't know how to say it. I think you just said it. What do you think, Sarah? Gosh, I mean, my heart goes out to this friend of yours because I can't imagine living in that situation. And the only thing that I could tell you, because I'm not an expert, you know, I don't work with any NGOs, but I want them to know that there are people here in the rest of the world that are thinking about them and that the fact that you're thinking about her and her family situation, you know, I'm sure must make her at least feel a little bit less alone. But there are NGOs that you can talk to and ask to connect you with another NGO that might work in her region. Uh, Mercy Corps is one that I really like a lot. The UNHCR, who handles refugees, you can see where they have the nearest UNHCR station. I think if she's Kurdish, then that's probably in northern Syria. But I think the best thing that you can offer is just, like, your support and just to let them know that you're thinking of them and, and probably work yeah. to humanize the plight of the Syrian people here in the United States. Yeah, There's and tell a, your friends. Just to humanize it because it's not a bunch of numbers. These right. are real people that are, are living in desperation. It's a tough one, Lauren. Thanks for yeah. your call. Okay, thank you. Yeah, this is uh, one of the great values of travel is you just humanize and, and you realize the reality of this tragedy that's going on. Very briefly, Sarah, we know Syria is falling apart now. You were there just before the war. How would you characterize the country before it fell apart with its civil war? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was in Damascus the whole time I was there. My journalist friends, they were able to do a little bit more reporting and traveling in Palmyra um, and other parts of the country. But Damascus is very different from the rest of Syria, as far as I understand, because this is where most of Assad's loyalty lies in the city of Damascus. So You mentioned there was photos of him everywhere. Yes. He was popular and respected and felt a genuine love of the people for their dictator, Assad. Yeah, some of it is genuine. Is he? Is he a, what is he? What's his position? Pre- uh, he's president? the president. President. Yes. But the other thing to know about Syria is that it was not a place where people were able to speak openly about their feelings about their government. We spent some time in Beirut right before we were in Syria and got there in Beirut. You know, it's just tons of young people I was hanging out with and everybody wants to talk about politics. They're complaining about every government in the world. We were talking about WikiLeaks. You know, they were complaining about their own government, about the U.N., about the United States, everything. So in Syria, before the war, it was still Assad was the undisputed president and people were 
afraid to talk. People are afraid to talk, especially to us. And we in Lebanon, were, it's... Lebanon, it's talk about whatever you want. But well, you cross the border and people were not going to tell you anything about their thoughts. So it's always hard to know what people really thought in their hearts. But, you know, people were scared. Now, you got into homes in Turkey and Iraq and in Syria. What was your sense of the position of women and uh, any particularly enlightening moments when you're actually in people's homes that you'd like to share? People were very welcoming. You know, you, you meet someone for five minutes and you're getting an invitation to dinner. That's just something that happens in the Middle East. And in the homes, yes, there are some. The woman usually is the one who brings in the tea, but it's not, I think, what a lot of people think of it as this caricature of, like, the women are in some other room or something. You know, women were definitely part of the conversation. And when we were talking to Iraqi refugees, especially, they were leading the conversations. They were the ones who had the most passionate things to say. My experience is in the privacy of the home, the woman is at least an equal. Yes. Out on the street, the men get to play backgammon and be <laughs> the big shots. But where, behind the home, it's the women wear the pants. Yeah. And, you know, we're also Sarah Studeville, the kind of lead journalist on this project, and I are women. And so I think... Sometimes as a female journalist, you have women opening up to you a little bit more than they might open up to a man. But these women are really strong, and they are not afraid to share their opinions with you, and they are smart. And we have to remember that Syria and Iraq were both really educated countries. These are places where university is free, where people were the most common job that I heard of was engineer. Everybody wants to be an engineer. You know, these are mostly middle-class, highly educated people. Men and women? Men and women. And so for the people that we talked to, the Iraqis, their biggest issue above everything else was that they wanted their children to be able to have their college education. So it's really just like someone here. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Glidden. Her lessons from traveling in Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Her book is called Rolling Blackouts. Why do you call the book Rolling Blackouts? So the title Rolling Blackouts came in part from actual rolling blackouts, controlled blackouts when we were in northern Iraq. The city of Suleimania, which is kind of near the border with Iran, is a growing city. There's a lot of construction going on. There's oil there. So there's a lot of business happening. And so the city could not support the electrical supplies that they had. So they have rolling blackouts, controlled blackouts there to kind of maintain the grid experiencing that for the first time was very surprising. All the lights went out and we were all kind of shocked. And all around us, the other people who we were with who lived there were just, oh, you know, this is every day. And so it made me think of the kinds of things that people get used to very quickly. But also, to me, it kind of alludes to the idea of memory and storytelling. Um, When we're telling stories Mm. to journalists or we're telling our own stories, we're forgetting things, we're remembering things maybe a little differently sometimes. Our lives move and change. And so rolling blackouts to me kind of alludes to what goes on with our memories when we tell stories. When we hear about the Middle East on TV news today, you've been there. What's your advice or caution so we can better understand the reality in the Middle East? Well, you know, you'll never know everything. And I think that that's something to always keep in mind when you're reading anything, watching anything. Don't assume that just because you've read something or because you've heard someone else tell you something that they sound like they know what they're talking about, don't assume that you know the whole story. There's always more to find out. You know, yes, I've been to some of these places, but I'm no expert. There's always more to learn, and there's always going to be the story that you don't hear. Um, A journalist, they can't talk to everybody. 
you know, there's always more to hear and that we need to be critical about what we're listening to. We need to really fact check it for yourself. Read something from the other side and to always keep an open mind. Make a point to get both narratives. I think that's a real danger a lot of Americans on both ends of the political spectrum have a challenge with. We love to believe that we know everything. (laughs) Well, you find out different when you actually travel there. Sarah Glidden, Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Thanks so much for your reporting. Oh, thank you for having me here. When you grow up in the Netherlands, squeezed between the German, French, and Scandinavian parts of Europe and close enough to England to enjoy its radio and TV stations, it's no surprise that you get good at speaking and understanding a lot of different languages. Gaston Doran was raised in the state of Limburg, where the local dialect was his first language. He picked up a knack for what he calls language spotting, and he became a linguist and journalist. Gaston's written Lingo, around Europe in 60 languages, to feature stories of the words and expressions languages have borrowed and stolen from each other over the centuries. Gaston joins us now from the DB Media Group studios in Hilversum, Holland, with a few suggestions for words that we might consider adopting into our English vocabulary. Gaston, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. When you study the various languages in Europe, I know in your book you you sort of sum up each chapter with the word that is used in that language that we might enjoy in other languages. Can you give us a few examples? Yes, sure. One that I like, for instance, is a Serbo-Croatian word called medak, which is pleasure that you derive from simple things, such as, uh, you know, spending time with friends, which I think is an unexpectedly wise and meditative term from the former Yugoslavia. And another one is a word that exists in many languages. Like in Spanish, for instance, it's uh, alphabetizar. It doesn't mean alphabetize, which does exist in English, but it means to make people literate, to teach them how to read and write. And it's such a useful word, and I always miss it when I have to explain this in English. Oh, so to alphabetize is to make somebody literate. Exactly, yes. All right. Not in English, but in other languages. Right, yeah. Well, I've always thought it would be nice just to let words jump over. I mean, sometimes it just feels like it's the right way to say it. Uh, Chow is something we could all enjoy saying. Uh, Well, English is not shy in that, uh, generally. I mean, English has borrowed a lot from all over the world. (laughs) Yeah. You've got a fun word in Norwegian for uh, drinking beer. Ah, right, yes. Uh, Utepils, or Utepils, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. A glass of beer enjoyed outdoors. So they Um, actually have a word for a glass of beer enjoyed outdoors. They buy these disposable grills at the grocery store. Right. So the the Mm -hmm. parks are filled with people with their one-time grills and their (laughs) Utepils, their beers enjoyed outdoors. And uh, in German, you've got a good word. Ah, uh, Gunnen. Yeah, that, that's a fun word because you always hear that uh, German has a word for schadenfreude, which uh, American English has uh, adopted, I think. And then people say, well, it's telling that Germans have a word for pleasure at somebody else's misfortune. But then you also have this word Gunnen, which means enjoying somebody else's good fortune. And you never hear that. Hmm. So that's vicarious envy. I like Exactly. That. Yes. Oh, that's a very yes. good word. To get joy out of somebody else's joy. Exactly. Somebody joked, in some other countries, when they have commands for their dogs, they use German words. <laughs> but I have to admit, in German, there's, there's certain words that are almost onomatopoetic when it comes to organization and efficiency, uh, you know, like <laughs> stimmt. Yeah, that's correct. So if you do anything, you go, is it sunny today? Stimmt. And then genau. Genau. Exactly. It means exactly, right? So that mm-hmm. costs $2.50. Genau. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of these, yes, okay, right. You know, but on the other hand, a lot of cultures, uh, your culture, German, Norwegian, have a beautiful word for cozy that I think ah. is a little special. Can you talk about those? 
Yeah, in, in, in Dutch, it would be gezellig. In, in German, gemütlich. I think in Scandinavian, they have something like kuseli. I'm not quite sure. Kuseli is Norwegian, um, and, and hugli. I think hugli is the hugli, word in, in that's Danish. that's the one. You're right. In, in the You're Danes, right. you know, you just walk down the street, and it's like a little fairy tale. It's, it's like a little storybook. It's Lilliputian land, and it's just so Danish. And there's actually a word for it, because they need a word for it, <laughs> and it is hugli. Of course, gazelleg is great. Cozy, kind of convivial. Exactly. E- yeah, easy going. If you're skating, you're from the south of the Netherlands, so you don't skate. But I've got this image of skating. And then mm-hmm. you want a little break, and you step out of the canal, and you, you kind of stomp off your skates on the mat. And then you've got a, a little humble pub, a, a, like a beer stube or a little guest house in the countryside. And you hear mm-hmm. all of this wonderful, convivial, social joy inside. And you open the door, and your glasses are covered with the steam when you step inside. And you sit down, and they serve you a nice hot drink. And uh, there's a welcoming us. It envelops you. And that would be a beautiful example of a Dutch gazellic, I think. And, yeah, and all sort of skating vocabulary springs to my mind now, now that you're describing this scene. <laughs> I love that. So what's another word that uh, we wish we had in all the languages that you like? Well, one that I like is uh, pisamanteiro, which is Portuguese for uh, something that, well, in English you could describe it as funeral crasher. So somebody who pretends to be a mourner, who comes to the funeral, but really only is in it for the free food and drink. Um, <laughs> apparently, that's a, that's a phenomenon, either Portugal or Brazil or both. I'm not Whoa, sure. Whoa, there's enough people crashing funerals for the free food in order to have a name for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's the name again? Pesamenteiro. Oh, that is great. Our guest is linguist and journalist Gaston Doran. He makes his home in the Netherlands. His book, Lingo Around Europe in 60 Languages, was first written in Dutch. Now it's out in English. It's been translated into Spanish, Swedish, Norwegian. In German, the book's called Sprechen, And in Russian, it's called Lingvol. It features tales that reveal Europe's history and cultures through its many languages and dialects. His website is languagewriter.com. I've been studying drug policy in Europe, and in, in many countries, the word for addicted, like if you're addicted to hard drugs, is enslaved which gives it a whole different... It is in Dutch, yes. In Dutch. So so when you say if somebody is addicted to heroin, if you translated it literally, what would that be? That would be heroin enslaved. Heroin verslaved. So he's got a a medical and a health problem more than a criminal problem. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we don't necessarily think about addiction differently because of the word. I mean, verslaving, addiction, still has the same... Um, value, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, but, okay. well, you can never be sure because I can't look into your head and you can't look into mine. Right, because to me, enslaved, it cuts the uh, addicted person a little bit of slack. Yeah. On the other hand, when somebody is a real slave, I mean, in the technical sense, you wouldn't call him or her uh, with that word. You would just say that they are a slave. So Okay, uh, so there's a little difference. Fine-tuning. It's, yeah. Those are the complexities of language. So, Gaston, when, when somebody is about to wrap up a conversation like we are, what are different uh, fun ways with the language to say goodbye? Well, to say goodbye, uh, even in a small country like Holland, there are many regional differences. You could say hoye or adi or ayus or dui or duch or how do. All of those. <laughs> you could in... even say with a Yiddish word, hey, the muzzle, which means uh, good luck to you. Ah, okay. And that's all within the Netherlands? That's all in, within the Netherlands. It exactly. sounds like a mix of uh, French and German. That's spot on. <laughs> <laughs> I like in. Uh, talking about languages and cultures that have different words that we don't have. In Turkey, they've got a word for goodbye when you're staying and somebody else is leaving. Right. And they say, gule gule. is so nice. And every time, it's rare yeah. when I'm traveling because I'm usually the one that's leaving. But if I'm staying yeah. and you're going, 
I get to say gule gule. Yeah, literally, I think it means smile, smile. Is that right? Smile, smile. I think so. I like that. Well, Gaston Doran, best wishes with your book, Lingo, and gule gule. <laughs> Ciao. Who do you think makes the tastiest beer in the world? Up next, we'll find out why the Czechs just might deserve the top prize. Guides from Prague take your calls at 877-333-RICK as we hear how the Czechs have been making enjoying a nice pilsner, a beloved part of their traditions for centuries. Ever since medieval times, the Czechs have been perfecting the art of brewing and enjoying really good beer. I visited Prague back in the 1990s, shortly after the borders opened up for the former communist countries of Eastern Europe. I was surprised to hear that some Czechs wouldn't leave home because they just couldn't imagine getting used to the inferior beer they'd heard about outside their borders. We're joined right now on Travel with Rick Steves by tour guides Jana Ronkova and Katarina Svobodova from Prague. They're here to help us better appreciate the bohemian beer culture. Jana, I have to admit, you just can't go wrong with a Czech pilsner. So why does brewing and enjoying a good beer play such an important role where you live? Well, Czech culture is about the beer. It always was like that from, as you said, the medieval times, because it was sometimes really risky to, to drink the normal water. So instead of the water, really, you have to do some kind of like a healthy process of that. So either wine or beer. Is but that right? In the so the, country, water was, the water was going bad because they didn't have ways to keep that clean. And all the germs and stuff mm. like that. So, and we don't have that Roman culture, really, of the, of the wine in, the, in Bohemia, really. So right. beer was always the drink, so beer number one. Yeah, yeah, because also you had to actually boil the water. Because once you brew the beer, you so, just kill it all. So you drink oh. beer for health reasons. It's just healthy beer. Of course, it's full of vitamins, you know, B6, B12, and all these Bs, whatever. So, yeah. There's a lot of breweries, a lot of beer produced, and a lot of consumption. Do you, do you know any statistics off the top of your head about... Oh, yes. What, what, what can you say? <laughs> I to? like to talk about that quite a lot because we are pretty good now. We are actually the best now in the world per capita. The best what? Best beer drinkers <laughs> per capita. Is that Even right? better than Germans or Belgians. We really? are. Because those are the three big countries, Belgium, Germany, and Czech, for, for beer consumption. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, it got a little down, I think, two years before. It was about 160 liters, if mm. I uh, remember correctly. So that will be like 320 beers a year. Really? So per capita, per capita. Yeah, so so including all the children. A beer is half a liter, basically. Mm. So it's about a, a mug a day. For yeah, the Czech people, that is including right. <laughs> young and old. Well, per capita. What is the age limit for drinking? 18. Beer? 18. That means you can go into a bar after 18 and, and have a beer. You can buy beer in the. Yeah, store. but of course, you may try it even before, but it's your parents' responsibility, you know. But usually, I don't think that we actually get to that taste uh, so early because you really need to develop a little bit the taste for the beer, yeah. especially when it's this bitter, hoppy kind of. That's what our beers are so mostly about. So the Czech about. beer is more bitter and hoppy. Mm. Well, I would say because this is exactly like we cannot imagine that we would put this uh, lime juice or whatever is that, uh, right. you There's know, into the beer. cherry flavored beers mm. in, uh, it's in nothing Belgium big and, in, yeah, and in Berlin. In they culture. put a little squirt of some syrup. Y yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't do that much. <laughs> no. When you say a beer, is there one basic beer in Czech Republic? Uh, what, what would that be? Yana? Well, Pilsner would be really like the one. And that, that, that's really like, we even, let's say, invented uh, the name. 
because uh, Plzeň, that's the city outside of, of town, Prague, Pilsner, famous, yeah, famous for the beer. Uh, yeah. My favorite beer here, I, I just love a Pilsner, yeah, Pilsner Urquil, Urquil. And we yeah. get, that's very popular in the States now. Uh, also, people, you know, Budweiser is one of the most highly advertised mass-produced beers in the States. Uh, is it true that the original Budweiser came from... How does that... What's the connection with Budweiser here in Budvar, I think it is, in Czech yeah, Republic? Yeah, we either call it Budvar, that's a Czech version, or Budweiser, it's actually just a German translation of it. Oh, okay. But the beer comes from the southern part of Bohemia, where we have a town called Czeske Budějovice. So this B-U-D actually gives the name to the beer. But then, yeah, it somehow happened. I don't know exactly the story, but it just happened that all of a sudden it's it was also produced here or people were drinking it here and there is no connection whatsoever. No connection. The they just two, took the name, huh? They just took the name. Because the name is a good brand. I mean, Yeah, gosh, I mean, we've started like yeah. 18 something, 1840 or something like that very brewery. So then, yeah, it was definitely so if before. If you're drinking a Budweiser one. in the United States, whether it's a good or bad beer, that's beside the point, but it is not connected with the Budweiser in the it's Czech not, Republic. It's not, yeah. And mm-hmm. this is actually sometimes really kind of a sad thing that people come from the States. I don't know, I've never had it here, but then they say that it is kind of watery, nothing really to rave about. So mm-hmm. then when I see them, it's like, let's go and try the, the real one, the and, real stuff. And, and what is their reaction? And then it's like, wow, you know, it's really... <laughs> <laughs> it's really the beer, you it know. Is so, the beer. so we must protect that very much. So, yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Les is calling with some ideas about beer. And Les is calling from Tucson, Arizona. Hi there, or I should say, uh, ahoy. Oh, ahoy. Yeah. ahoy. Ahoy. Which yes. is which well, is hello in Czech yes. Republic. Yeah. But maybe after we get some beer, we can say ahoy. <laughs> ahoy better. Okay. What's up, Les? <laughs> okay. My wife and I spent a couple of days there in, in Prague two years ago and really, really underestimated the city. So, And soon we're going to go back for four days. And we would like to know... Give us four pubs, if you can, that has traditional Czech music and that is really friendly and a great place to hang out for evenings. Can you do that? Whoa. So there, Les had a great time for two days. He's going back for four days. He appreciates the Czech Pilsner, and he wants four characteristic pubs. Strahovsky Pivovar, that's the Strahov brewery we love a lot. That's uh, one of those where locals love to go because also the beer goes there like centuries back. Strahov, named named for the monastery on on the hill. Strahov, it's a beer hall? It's a beer hall. It's a small one, but then you actually are sitting just next to the vessels. Behind the Prague Castle complex, there is a monastery, library, and brewery. Three in one, as we like to call it sometimes. Monastery, library, and brewery. brewery. Three in one. Leave it to those (laughs) monks. Okay, (laughs) so the Strahov Brewery, and then, Jana, what is one that you would like? Well, I would say one pub which is called Upinkasu. It's situated directly in the Newtown area, just around the corner from the Wenceslav Square. And that's really like the traditional pub where the... Upinka... Upinkasu. Upinkasu. And when you say a traditional pub, what does that mean? That's where the locals, they they still go there. We have the beer hall. There is a beautiful, like a garden as well, where the locals sit and eat. uh, So indoors or outdoors, depending on the weather. Yes, yeah. Katarina, can you think of another... Yeah, then maybe I would go to Lokal. Lokal, it's, I think, a new concept of the restaurants with the fresh, unpasteurized beer, 
We have oh, two, okay. one on the one side of the railroad, one on the other. So maybe that was the tank beer, what you also tried. So it's local, it's called? Local. That would be a nice modern take on the traditional Czech beer, the unpasteurized. Yeah. And also the way of serving. They uh, When you come there, they have a little postcard showing you the way how they can put like either a lot of the foam in it. We even call the beer milk because it can be like almost half of the or even more than half of the glass, the foam. And just down there at the bottom, you have the beer. And that's a good thing? It's called milk. Yeah, some people really? like it they because like that. that's the taste of the foam. You know, it's a little different. It's a little... Now that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Also, I was in a little pub below the parliament, I believe, where a lot of politicians go. I think it's called the Elephant or something like that. No, that was Uhrocha, right? Uhrocha. I think that is your favorite place yeah. in Malastrana, Uhrocha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what is that called again? Uhrocha. It's a, a hippo. Oh, the hippo, that's hippo, right. Yeah. The hippo. And it's so small. And it's full of locals having a great time. And the beautiful thing about the beer is it just keeps coming and it stokes all the conviviality and the conversation. And there might be musicians there and also hearty food and you cannot spend very much money. I guess a big decision you got to make is, you know, you can go to a famous place downtown which has a heritage and, and is comfortable with the tourist. Or you can go to a place that's in the neighborhood or farther away that's mm. that's really just a local local dive. That's, and uh, That's what we're looking for. And then, that's uh, exactly right. Yeah. All right. Hey, Les, thanks for your call. Yeah, and thank you so much. And day qui. Day qui. Bye now. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Czech beer culture. We're joined by Katerina Svobodova and Jana Hrankova, both tour guides from the beautiful city of Prague. And Brandon's calling in from Galena in Illinois. Brandon, thanks for your call. Yes, I was in Prague in 2014 for a uh, college trip. And we ended up going to a bar, I guess you can call it, next to Namaste Miro. And it was a very bohemian-influenced bar. I mean, there was people on the, it seemed like a very cheers-like bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, people sitting on the bar, sleeping on the bar stools. There was dogs running around. I was curious what the bohemian influence has been on the uh, Prague bar scene. First of all, it's a little confusing for tourists because a lot of people think bohemian means like a, right. like a beatnik. And that comes from, I think it comes from a cafe or a nightclub in Paris. And when you say bohemian in the context of the Czech Republic, that refers to uh, one of the states of the Czech yeah, Republic. The region. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Bohemia. Bohem- so this is from the region of Bohemia. So it has nothing to do with being, quote, bohemian. In, in the sense of most Americans would think, but what does Bohemia mean to the Czech people, Katerina? When we say like something's Bohemian, yeah, we actually refer just to the region, you to know, the region. And, and, and of course the, there is a reason why it is named this way and it was even, it's maybe not as exciting as it sounds to be this unconventional, you know, like hippie kind of lifestyle. We would love to have it all, I think, <laughs> but we probably can't live this way, all of us. So this is just a very simple thing that it is a name of one Celtic tribe what had lived there before we Czech people came there. Bohemian. Boys. Boys. And that was called like Boyaremum and then Bohemia. That's how actually it started to be called. So that's just uh, yeah, nothing as exciting as and it may Jana, sound. And Jana, if you're traveling in, in uh, Bohemia in the Czech Republic, what might you find? What is unique about Bohemia? Well, as we are talking about the beer, really, culture, the thing is we are always saying like all the problems will be solved with a muck of beer in our hands, really. So the Pubs were always the place uh, for people to meet, talk about their troubles, and and try to solve. So that would be characteristic of the region yeah. of Bohemia. Yeah. What is there a saying in in the Czech language about the beer and have a mug of beer in your hand or something like this? Well, we are saying, uh, "Gdeš se pivovaří, tam se dobře daří." 
So very, very, <laughs> very you brew the beer, then, then everyone is happy. Well, you brew the beer, then everyone's happy. Mm. Wow. That's a good example of how the first time I went to Prague, for me, the big challenge was simply knowing the words, the proper nouns. It's For the American, it can be confusing. I mean, there's a it's lot of... It's difficult because the pronunciation is, is difficult as we are a Slavic nation. Yeah. So so the Slavic language is, is definitely Maybe harder for Americans. Maybe you need a, a couple of beers before you try oh, to do Oh, yeah, that. well, as you are getting more and more beers, then you are getting better and better in the, the Czech, Czech language. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, tourism is such a big deal in Prague now that most young people, most educated people, most people in tourism will speak English. For me, regardless of how well they speak English, there's still the names, like when you say the bars, that it's just very hard for me to get my brain around. Brandon, uh, thanks so much for your call. Yep, thank you. Okay, happy travels. And Margie's calling from West in Texas. Hi. A lot of people don't know that West, the town I'm from, it's West with a comma, Texas. Uh, we're a little Czech settlement. At one point, there was a master thesis done on the population of our town, and it was found that over 75% of the population in this town was in some part Czech. Really? And I'm one of them. All right. West, West Texas, West, Texas, and a very um, strong Czech heritage in your town. Does that show itself in, in the, the beers that you enjoy in your town? Well, yes. We probably stick more to, you know, your traditional American beer. Mm-hmm. But we have a huge... Czech Fest every Labor Day weekend called West Fest, and it celebrates the Czech culture, and of course it celebrates Pivo, which is beer. We have all the Czech beers, and then we also have the American made and Texas made, but I don't think many people realize how many Czechs are in the state of Texas. Our town is considered to be the Czech point of Texas. We're home of the official Kalachi of the East Texas legislature, and even when we had a tragedy in our town where there was a fertilizer plant explosion, the ambassadors from the Czech Republic donated $80,000 so that we could have a Sokol Hall, which is a Czech gymnastic fraternal organization, so they could rebuild the Sokol Hall in West. Wow, you have a Sokol Hall in West Texas. Yes, we do. Let's just uh, let uh, our, our guides explain to us what a Sokol Hall is, because I thought that was unique to the Czech Republic. What is a Sokol Hall, yeah. S-O-K-A-L? Well, well, we used to have many more, but mm-hmm. it was in the First Republic, meaning the early 20th century when Czechoslovakia was established. But mm-hmm. then it was actually um, banned by the communists, so we mm-hmm. could not continue with that tradition. And even probably just at the turn of the century, more or less, it started. And it was, of course, to enhance the Czech culture with the performing, with the dancing, mm-hmm. with kind of a exercising at the same time. And we used to have such festivals, too. I know even like after the fall of communism, I went to a couple of uh, them. They were kind of revived. And they were much more kept abroad than in my country, just because we could not really, you know, continue with the tradition. So with the, the communists, they didn't want you to have the celebration of the Czech culture so much? Margie, tell us something more about the Czech culture in West Coma, Texas. Well, most of us are Bohemians. My grandfather came over when Franz Joseph of Austria tried to get all the young men to serve in the military when they really didn't want to, and there was a huge immigration. Uh, my great-grandfather was the first Czech in the town of West, and so many followed because of the agriculture there. Wow. He was so yes. your family is sort of the pioneers of the Czech culture in West. 
the population of our town is just predominantly Czech. We have the huge Czech weddings at funerals. A lot of people do the, in heaven there is no beer. That's why we drink it here. They sing it at funerals. They and sing it at funerals. I'm going to have to drop in for a funeral in West Texas someday. Thanks so much. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our guides to the time-honored beer culture of the Czech Republic are Katerina Svobodova and Jana Krankova. You can listen again and find out more about our guests on each week's Travel with Rick Steves by looking in the radio section of our website. That's at ricksteves.com. We've been kind of inspired to go to the Czech Republic and try the beautiful beer and connect with the culture that way. What are some of the rituals of drinking a beer uh, and some travel tips if we're in a, in a pub and we want to know how to drink a beer properly? Jana? Well, you always have to be a little bit careful when ordering the beer because uh, when we ask for the drinks, when we are counting, we start with thumb like that. With a thumb. So, so this you, is one beer so starting with the thumb. if I hold up my first finger to say one... I'm, you will immediately get two beers. Because they assume the thumb is up exactly. also. So thumb yeah. and then thumb and first finger for two. Okay, that's a good tip. And another point is that the beer is kind of like constantly flowing into, on the table. So it'll always be, when you finish your beer, another one will come? Definitely, yeah. H- in how like do you a, stop that in, without being rude? Either you fall down under the table so the waiter will notice that, that you already <laughs> had enough. I'm drinking. Or you kindly ask the, the, the waiter. But Is otherwise, there. the waiter will presume that you need another beer and another beer. They don't fill the glass up. They bring a different glass? No, they glass. bring you the different glass so with a new, fresh beer. Or if you just leave the beer on in front of you without drinking, that would be the yes, end of it. Yes, that would be the sign. And the thing we should stress is that's not going to cost that much money because a beer is quite inexpensive. It's, it's very cheap. And actually, they are now even planning to pass a new law. So every pub will have at least one cheaper soft drink. Because in many cases, it could happen that on the drink list, the, the beer is the most uh, inexpensive one. Oh, so and people, even the soft drinks are more expensive than the beer. So people without very much money will have an alternative to the uh, alcohol if they don't, if yeah. they want to drink yeah. and not become poor. Yeah, exactly. have one cheap soft drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of like drinking beer and beer and more and more alcohol. Katerina, what other sort of traditions are there with the beer? Yes, so when we get the beer, uh, of course, we say cheers, but in the local language. So we say nasdravi, nasdravi. What, what means to your health, as we really believe that there are some components in the beer what makes you healthy. Yep. And then we cling the mugs, but then yep. we go down on a table. So we just hit the table okay, and then so, up. So we could say to your health and clink our glasses, but you actually put the glass on the table. On the table. And why do you do that? It's like to touch the earth, you know, to touch the ground. It always... Uh, so you ground it. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, of course, you have to always look to the person's eyes. It's not that you just do it to the air, but you so do it to the, the person. So each person at the table, you have meaningful yes. eye contact. Mm-hmm. Nasdravi. Nasdravi. Eye contact. Ground it. Yes. And then enjoy your beautiful, frothy mug of Czech beer. Mm. You've got some practice, Rick. I've done. You've <laughs> done some practice. I've done some practice, and I'm going to do some more practice. I hope to see each of you next time I'm in Prague. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying the Czech beer culture with Jana Hrankova and Katerina Svobodova. Děkuji. Nazdraví. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by yours truly, Tim Tappen, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. 
Plus, Rick has an app for your mobile phone with self-guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. It's all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.